Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. We are talking about uh, Hail and Farewell, Book 2, Chapter 3. A bit of a shorter chapter, that's nice. We got through it in one go. Uh, Techrific says... The miles flowed under our wheels. We had become so we had come so far that it seemed as if we might go on for another hundred miles without feeling tired, and the day too seemed as if it could not tire and darken into night. I feel the complete opposite. Oh, hang on. Excuse me. I'm taking my jumper off. <clears throat> Alright. <laughs> Sorry about that. I feel the complete opposite, says Dick. I feel that we've gone so far gone on so far yet moved nowhere i feel drained and bored i can usually muster up some interest in at least some detail or the odd tidbit that might spark some reflection but not for this one at least not now i can't wait to read something that's actually interesting and thought-provoking yeah you know it's funny you say that i am i think of myself as a big reader um but since I started daily podcasting, I feel like that took over my reading habit. And even though I only podcast sometimes, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day, it is the total amount of effort. Um, it somehow replaced the hours I would spend reading for pleasure um, back in the day. And I kind of feel like I haven't just read a book for the heck of it. You know, just a book that I've chosen from a bookshop because it you know, caught my interest or someone recommended it, um, you know, someone other than Hemingway. Um, and yeah, I don't like that. And I do, I do look forward to just reading something just because I feel like it. Um, I'm hoping that when this daily podcast experiment ends soon in the coming months, that I will just resume my habit of reading. And, you know, I have actually been reading every single day of the experiment, so it's not fair to say, like, I'm not reading on a daily basis. You know, if anything, maybe I'm reading more when you average it out. Um, but, yeah, I, have, I haven't really read a book just for the heck of it, just for pleasure, since, like, I'm going to say, like, five, six years ago, which is a long time for someone who's a big reader. You know, usually I'm churning through books. Um... Soom system of fishy replied saying, Oh no, I must disagree. What a surprise. I enjoyed this chapter. I'm an aficionado of road trips, both taking them and reading about them. Although George and AE are on a bike trip here and George and Edward were on a train trip. In fact, one of my most favorite road trips books ever is Kayak by Paul Thoreau, The Happy Isles of Oceana. Okay. Yeah, I can get into a good road trip book, road trip movie, uh, or, or indeed just a road trip um, a road trip with an audiobook is one of my favorite things. Um, now, I I kind of agree, Swim. I've, I've found it the book more interesting in the last few chapters. Not that I've really enjoyed it. I wouldn't say it's, you know, starting to become like a good book or anything like that. But I would just say The Adventures of George and A.E., uh, have got a different tone to me, and um, despite even though they are a bit slow and tedious, I find them more interesting. AE's personality maybe is a better counterpart to George's, and just their antics of trying to you know become enlightened 
uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Swim says, book two so far has quite a different tone from book one. This trip with AE is much different to George's trip with Edward. Uh, AE seems to soften George's brittle edges. Yeah, I would agree. Um, here's a fun fact. A tumulus, plural of tumuli, is a mound of earth and stones raised over a grave or graves. Tumuli are also known as barrows, burial mounds or kurgans, and may be found throughout much of the world. Yeah, I watched a movie about these recently where um, the guy digs up one in England somewhere. can't think of the name of the movie. It's probably like The Big Dig or something like that. <laughs> uh, it's a true story. And actually, this is funny because I was talking about um, tumulus or tumuli today with my mum who watches, we went for a walk and she was talking about them. Um, she watches some show, some YouTube show, I think it is, uh, like about history. Um, oh, I can't tell you the name of it. I'll find it out for tomorrow. I'll, actually, I'll probably forget to do that. But um, yeah, there's a YouTube dedicated to that, like digging up or, or searching sort of for those signs of those things, raised mounds um, that might have been hidden in the topography and now they've got the tools to sort of uncover them and they're, they're basically treasure hunting through Europe. Um, all right, let's read. Chapter four. Um, and I'm going to do a short reading today um, because... Even though it is actually quite a short chapter, I'm still going to break it in half, I think. Um, so, here we go. You've punctured, A.E. said, and I could see that he looked upon the incident as ominous. I can mend your puncture for you, but perhaps the quickest way will be to go back. The shop isn't more than a quarter of a mile from here. And in it we met a young man who advanced to meet us on a long, th- on long thin legs, his blue Celtic eyes full of inquiry. After listening, I thought sympathetically to my mishap. He was really thinking of something else. He asked me what he could do for me. And on my telling him again that I had punctured, he seemed to wake up sufficiently to call his partner, a thick-set man, who seized my machine and told me that he was just tightening a gentleman's wheel for him, but it wouldn't take more than a couple of minutes. In a quarter of an hour, dot, 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 could I wait that long? He spoke with a Lancashire burr, and I began to wonder how the Celt and the Saxon had come together. So different were they, and why the red-headed Celt lingered about the shop instead of going to the help of his fellow. And it was to escape from unpleasant thoughts of my country's idleness that I asked him if the language movement was making progress in Dundalk. But when he told me that a branch of the Gaelic League had been started about two years ago and that he was a constant attendant at the classes, I apologised to him inwardly for a hasty judgment and seeing in him perhaps a future apostle, I commenced preaching. A few people had just dropped in for a chat after dinner and taking for my text the words that I had heard spoken on the road to Chelsea, I said, a few days after the voice spoke to me again, this time not out of the clouds, but within a few inches of my ear, and the words that it was spoke were, go to Ireland, go to Ireland, and not long after this second revelation, a force completely outside of myself compelled me to fall upon my knees, and I prayed for the first time in many years, but it was not to any Christian God that I prayed. A.E. looked up, hoping no doubt that I would not shock the young man's Catholic susceptibilities to the point 
of his asking me to leave his shop, and thinking that in saying I had not prayed to a Christian god I had said enough, I admitted that the future religion of Ireland was not our business, but one for the next generation to settle. Our business was to revive the Irish language, for the soul of Ireland was implicit in it, and pulling out of my pocket a copy of the Clichim Sulis, I described the aims and ambitions of the paper. But a cloud came into the young man's face and into the faces of the three or four people present, whom I invited to subscribe to it, and the thought dashed through my mind that I was being mistaken for an advertising agent. And to remove such a sordid suspicion, I told them that I had no pecuniary interest in the paper whatever, but was working for the language of our forefathers and to support this paper, the organ of the League, seemed to me part of the work I had been sent to do in Ireland. The best part... Sorry. The best way to do this was by getting advertisements for the paper, and my way of getting advertisements was simple and advantageous to all parties. I had rented a house in Dublin, the roof was leaking, and a builder had to be called in. He had been given the job of repairing the roof on condition that he advertised in Cleedheim's Sulis. The upholsterer had furnished my house under the same conditions, and as soon as I had come to live in it, I had gone to the butcher, the grocer, the chandler, the greengrocer, the apothecary, the baker, the tailor, draper, the bootmaker. You shall have my custom if you advertise in the Cladheim Solus. And you, sir, having bicycles to sell, might like to do business with me on the same terms. The young Celt agreed that he would like to do business with me, but seeing, but being somewhat slow-witted, said he must refer the matter to his partner. But why refer it to your partner, I answered. Everybody will advertise if he is sure of getting custom. I am the only advertising agent in the world who can ensure a speedy return for the money laid out. As the young man hesitated, A.E. took me aside and reminded me that my method was not as applicable to bicycles as to furniture and food, for if I were to buy a bicycle every time I punctured, I should have more machines on my hands than it would be possible for me to find use for. If you'll be good enough to wait till my partner comes back, chimed in the young Celt, I'll be able to give you your answer. And when the Lancashire man came in with the bicycle on his shoulders, The conditions of the sale were explained to him, conditions which I could see by the partner's face he was quite willing to accept. We shan't get to Slivergullion today if you don't hasten, he said, but the Lancashireman, loath to lose a chance of selling a bicycle, sent the young Celt along with us, the pretext being to put us on the right road, and we all three pedalled away together, myself riding in the middle, explaining to the Celt that language wears out like a coat. And just as a man has to change his coat when it becomes threadbare, a nation has to change its language if it is to produce a new literature. There could be no doubt about this. Italy had produced a new literature because Italy had changed her language, whereas Greece had not changed hers and there was no literature in Greece. And there could be none until the modern language had separated itself sufficiently from the ancient. The young man seemed to wish to interpose a remark, but I dashed into a new theory Ideas were climatic. The climate of Ireland had produced certain modes of thought, and these could only transpire in the language of the country, for, of course, language is only the echo of the mind. The young man again tried to interpose a remark, and A.E. tried too, but neither succeeded in getting heard, for it seemed to me of primary importance to convince the young man that literary genius depended 
upon the language as much as upon the writer, and Ireland was proof of it. For, although Irishmen had been speaking English for centuries, they had never mastered that language. If Irishmen would only read English literature, A.E. shouted from the other side of the road, but they read the daily paper. But A.E., a nation reads the literature that it itself produces. Ireland cannot be as much interested in Shakespeare as England is, or in the Bible, Ireland having accepted the Church of Rome, and the two ways of learning English are through the Bible and Shakespeare. But there is an excellent Irish translation of the Bible, nearly as good as the English Bible, and A.E. appealed to the young Celt, who admitted that he had heard that Bedell's Bible was in very good Irish. But it isn't read in the classes. And why isn't it read in the classes, I asked. Well, you see, it was done by a Protestant. I screamed at him that it was ridiculous to reject good Irish because a Protestant wrote it. You are a native speaker, sir? No, I answered. I don't know any Irish. The young man gazed at me and A.E. began to laugh. You should begin to learn, and I hope you won't mind taking this little book from me. It is O'Growie's. I'm in the fifth, and now, he said, I don't think I can go any further with you. The Cromlech, you can't miss it when you come to the first gate on the left. He left us so abruptly that I could not return the book to him, and I had to put it into my pocket, and the incident amused A.E. until we came to a gate about half a mile up the road, which we passed through, coming upon the altar of our forefathers in the middle of a large green field, a great rock poised upon three or four upright stones, nine or ten feet high, and one stone worn away at the base, but rebuilt by some pious hand, for the belief abides that Diamuid and Grenier slept under the Cromlech in their flight from Finn. Alright, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.